You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Over the last several years, like I imagine many of you have also done, I have learned a lot about myself. And one of the things I've learned is that I am a wallower. Here's what I mean by that. (laughs) A few weeks ago, one of my friends uh, became really amused at something I thought was very ordinary that I said. And he laughed and and he told me, I'm just realizing again how very different we are. He came to this realization as I was telling him about a conversation that my parents and I had had. Um, And uh, anybody who knows me knows how important my parents are to me. Uh, we, We talk almost every day if we can. But it wasn't the frequency with which I speak to my parents that he was laughing at, although I do tend to... um, buck the trend for millennials in this way. (laughs) But his amusement came from the fact that nearly every day when my parents and I chat, we spend a majority of our time talking about current events. My parents um, have both spent their entire careers as journalists in one form or another. And so, as you might imagine, growing up, we talked about the news all the time. And I thought that was normal. It is not. Um, And I'm glad because (laughs) I've got issues. (laughs) Um, But the joke was always that on the day I was born, uh, I arrived just in time for the 5 o'clock newscast. Um, Such is the way that my family often measures time. (laughs) Now, I I know you don't need me to tell you uh, that working our way through the headlines each evening is more often than not a painful and super disheartening process these days. Uh, So my parents and I tend to do a lot of wallowing together. I come by it very honestly. (laughs) And in classic Amanda form, uh, I have been thinking about the moment where my friend told me how strange my family is uh, since then, since he said it. I've been wallowing in that, you might say. Um, And what I've realized is that my attentiveness to the news is born not only out of my parents' influence, although certainly that is a huge part of it, but also out of a deep conviction that I have held for a very long time. And that conviction is this. God is not in control. Or at least not in the way that many people think. Let me explain. (laughs) If you're anything like me, you read the headlines, although uh, now we all know probably not as much as I do, Um, (laughs) but when you read them, you fall immediately into this pit of despair or anger or outrage or uh, grief, right? The list goes on. And if you're paying attention to the news at all, you don't need me to give you any updates on coronavirus case numbers or um, the sort of crumbling infrastructure of our health system or our public school systems, right? It seems like right now, nothing is right. Very little is neutral. And almost everything is wrong. And for those of us who claim 
this Christian faith, that's super challenging. That's super destabilizing. Because we are supposed to be the ones with certainty about the future. We're supposed to be the ones who have it all figured out. We're supposed to be the ones who can trust in God's promises, even when there is no evidence they are being worked out around us. That's supposed to be us. We're supposed to have the right words to say in the face of of everything that's happening. And most days, I don't have any words anymore. I feel wordless. And yet, in the moments like this one that we're living through right now, it can be too easy to find ourselves just like that, lost for words, right? Some of us are kind of just stumbling through life like zombies. We don't have much to cling to anymore when it comes to our faith. Some of us might be finding our deepest convictions are weaker, maybe more pliable than they used to be. And maybe they're just too weak to hold us up, or at the very least, too weak to hold our faith up anymore. One of these oldest convictions that I've, I've learned that a lot of Christians really hold on to is this idea uh, that, that God is in constant control of our lives, that God has a plan. There are a lot of very pretentious ways that Christian theologians have talked about this idea historically. So I'm going to share those with you, and then we're going to use some like normal human language to talk about it. So um, they, they would call it like the sovereignty of God. Sounds very pretentious. The omnipotence of God. That might sound even more pretentious. Sometimes they use the more simple language, like theological determinism, uh, which just means that God uh, determines everything that happens. It's the simple way of putting it. And for some people, maybe you know people like this, or maybe this is you, and that's okay. But for some people, this doctrine is, is very, very important. It's foundational to their faith. They need to know that God is always in control. They need to know that God is moving very intentionally and working in every single moment of their lives. They need to know that ultimately God is the one who is responsible for what happens. For others, though, this thought of a God who is sovereign, to use the pretentious word, who is totally in control, can be devastating. These are the people who engage in the work of theodicy, to translate for you, uh, the, the problem of pain, this, this struggle of trying to restore our understanding of a good God in the face of the world that we actually live in, right? It's a challenge. Full transparency here, I am one of those people who really struggles with that idea that God is in control. I don't know if if it's just because I have this super stubborn resistance to the idea of being controlled, the idea that I don't have free will. I hate that. (laughs) Or maybe it's just, you know, the result of reading every headline ever. But I have to tell you that, just again, super honest here, when I look around at the world these days, I, I have to think that God isn't in control. To think that God... Is, is somehow organizing all of this, that this is God's plan, makes me feel sick. And that's when I pray the kind of prayers that might sound familiar to you, or maybe at least you've prayed them at one point in your life or another. Prayers like, God, where are you? 
God, how could you let this happen? Please fix this. Please help me. Please do something, anything. Maybe you've prayed some prayers like that before. In my worst moments, I really do. I have to think that if God truly operates out of total sovereignty, if God is is truly, totally in control of our lives, then God must not care very much about me. Because my most fervent prayers, my most desperate requests throughout my life have often, frequently, almost always been ignored in favor of a much more cruel, much less good reality. In fact, if God is in control, then God must not care very much about any of us. Right? Look around. If this is what God's will looks like, I'm not so sure that I want to know God at all. But in the moments when I can at least attempt to sort of make a little sense of everything, in my best moments, you might say, I believe that Jesus has profound words to speak to us to reform our understanding of God, to help us see God more clearly. You see, theological determinism, this idea that God controls everything, was nothing new when Jesus came on the scene all those years ago. We see this understanding of the world all the time in the Hebrew Bible. If you read in the Old Testament, all kinds of things are sort of attributed to or ascribed to God. For example, if there is rain, then God is very happy. (laughs) And if there is a drought, God is probably less than happy. (laughs) And I laugh, not because droughts are funny, but because uh, I grew up in South Texas And so by that logic, God was very unhappy with all of South Texas the entire time I was growing up. Maybe it was me, like maybe I just needed to leave and then the the rain would come, right? Maybe it was just, you know, I don't know. (laughs) But that same sort of mindset also exists when we come to the New Testament as well. If you've been uh, tuning in with us uh, either here in person or online over the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, and it is a weird one. Um, when you read the Gospel of John, John says all of this crazy stuff. Like you heard in the scripture passage for this morning, he repeats himself like three times in each little chunk of scripture. Um, and John's version of Jesus is also very weird. <laughs> so we're, we're getting into weird Jesus in this sermon series, which is so fun. Earlier in the gospel, uh, long before our story that Katie read for us today, uh, there's this story where Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. We actually talked about this story several weeks ago toward the beginning of our sermon series. And if you remember right, Jesus' disciples put on this big show, right? They're standing there in the crowd, uh, and they're sort of debating what's about to happen. And the disciples say, Jesus, uh, who is the sinner here? Is it this blind man or his parents who sinned and caused this horrible thing to happen to him? Um, and Jesus is just standing over there like, oh, you guys don't know me at all. You haven't listened to a word that I have told you so far. And it's still early. It's like, it's chapter nine. You know, they have some time. But spoiler alert, they never get it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, but Jesus Jesus rebukes them. He says, no. Even stronger than that, he says, neither this man nor his parents are sinners. It's a pretty bold statement from Jesus. 
And he says, the glory of God will be shown in the healing of this man's blindness. Now, what we didn't talk about a few weeks ago is that Jesus then does the strangest thing. Jesus spits on the ground and then sort of like stirs it up a little bit and then takes that gross mud and spreads it into this man's eyes. Um, I, that's really weird. I've never done that. I don't know if you have. Maybe if you have, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> um, super strange. But it is this action that gives this man sight. It is this action that gives this man eyes to see. What a powerful moment. This moment where the God of the universe, made incarnate, to use another fancy theological word, put into a human body, spits in the dirt and speaks. And in doing that, reveals to us that God is never the cause of our pain. In doing that, Jesus reveals that God is not sitting upstairs with a grade book waiting for us to trip up, waiting for us to sin next so that he can dole out punishment in equal measure to what we've done. What Jesus reveals is that God is never the cause of all the death we experience in our very limited life here on earth. It's not how God works. Instead, in this moment, Jesus reveals that God sees our pain. God sees our fear of death. And God has radical compassion for it. And then, God transforms it into glory, Jesus says. You see, what the Gospel of John, in all of its weirdness, tells us throughout, is that Long before he ever goes to the cross, Jesus is showing us death and resurrection over and over and over again in his ministry. And even more than that, the gospel tells us that Jesus abdicates all of his sovereignty, all of his omnipotence, all of his ability to determine what happens. He gives all of that up in order to be put into this very limited human body, this very broken human body, and then chooses to go to the cross so that God might not just be offering us radical compassion, but radical empathy. So that God might understand what it's like to stare into the hopeless, dark void of death. So that divine love can be the kind of love that doesn't just leave us in our graves, but that grips us tight and pulls us up into new life again. That is Jesus' reformation. That is Jesus reforming us, teaching us who God really is. The good news of, of this gospel is that pain and struggling and even death are never the end of the story when Jesus is involved. And I think that this way of offering healing that we see Jesus do throughout the Gospel of John is the way that he operates in the world. This is how Jesus reforms us. We think we have it all figured out. We think we've got all the answers. We've done all the fancy theological work. We know all the vocab words, right? We think we can see clearly. 
when in reality we have been blind our entire lives. But instead of simply just clearing away these misconceptions, instead of just sort of shuffling away our human pride, what Jesus does instead is that he applies his weird spit mud to our eyes very generously. It's gross, but that's the analogy. And we open them. We open our eyes to find a world that is much more complex, much less categorical, much less simple than maybe we even wanted it to be. You know, one of the things I always quote of Jesus in my sermons is this phrase that we see in a bunch of different ways in all four Gospels. Jesus says something like, the Gospel is for those of you who have eyes to see, or for those of you who have ears to hear. And we who are Christian have the audacity to think that that is us. (laughs) So often, we who are disciples of Jesus believe that we have done it. We've got it. Um, We have done the task, and we have built the box big enough to fit Jesus, to fit God, or at least the Jesus and the God that we think we've apprehended. That's what we think our job is, and we've done it pretty well. We've got some good boxes. They have a lot of fancy words in them. Really good stuff. But Jesus says to us, if you want to truly see, if you want to truly hear, you first have to look and listen through this filter. And the filter is me. It's Jesus. It's a filter of grace and empathy and love. And it is, it is with this sort of muddied perception that Jesus offers to us that I believe we can truly find healing and wholeness. Now, I know, I know many of us in this room, myself included, like to think that we have embraced this kind of complex and non-binary worldview that we have the lockdown on nuance and context and particularity. We've got it. We've done all the hard work. But we often speak and operate as if we do not have it. We have not done the work. Sometimes without even realizing it, Christians are incredibly deterministic, and that comes out in our language, our songs, our prayers, and the way that we behave, the way that we act in the world. So for example, how many of you have ever said of a bad thing in your own or someone else's life, everything happens for a reason? Now that's a sentiment that is always said with the best of intentions. I've said it myself at different points throughout my life. But at its core, it assumes that God is orchestrating every single thing that happens to us in some sort of divine purpose. And for those of us whose lives are privileged, it's pretty easy for us to say that. It's pretty easy to say those words. It can be easy to call ourselves blessed and look around and see that it is true. But for those of us who have known deep grief or loss or struggle. Those words can feel like a slap in the face. Because that understanding begs the question, so what then is the reason that my parent, that my partner, that my sibling, that my child died before their time? What's the reason for that? What is the reason that my home burned down or 
was struck down by a hurricane or a tornado, what, what possible reason could there be for that? What does our being blessed have to say to the millions of people around the world whose entire existence has to be committed to just finding enough food to eat every day? In the midst of living through that kind of pain, that kind of struggle, even the most well-intentioned determinism, even the most pious devotion to the sovereignty and the power of God, communicates that God made those things happen to us, that God chose them for us or for other people. And I have to say, there's nothing that I can think of that can crush someone's faith in a good God more effectively than that idea. That God has done this to us. This feels like an important moment to point out that the solution that some people have found to such a a painful or even, you might say, harmful way of thinking is to swing in the totally opposite direction. Right? So if there are people over here who um, believe that uh, God has a sort of predetermined plan that God carries out for everything in the world, on the other side of things, there are many people who would argue that if there is a God, and that's a big if, that God is not involved in the world at all. That God can't be involved in the world without being heartless or maybe even something much worse. This understanding is sometimes referred to as the watchmaker argument. Now, I know you guys are like, oh no, this is going to be a lot. Just bear with me. (laughs) We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So countless philosophers and theologians have written about this theory, which states that the intelligent design of the universe, right, when we do research, when we look at science, when we learn more about human beings and uh, the way that we live in the world, all of these things that we're constantly learning tell us that there is probably some sort of intelligent creator, right? That's the watchmaker argument. An 18th century philosopher, David Hume, who I have to say, um, I don't think he's ever been quoted in a Christian sermon before, so welcome, David. Uh, We're glad, kind of, that you're here. Um, David David was critical uh, of this argument, but his enduring contribution to it lies in his admission that even if, Uh, This theory does prove that there is some sort of creator, which he's sort of like, meh, I don't buy it. (laughs) Uh, But he said, even if I did, even if I did buy that. What it does not prove is that this creator is the omnipotent, benevolent God of the Abrahamic religions, right, of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. In fact, he might say, this theory would prove that God, or this creator, is like a watchmaker who must have set things in motion, and then walked away for good. Said, good luck. Hope it goes well for you. One of the terms for this way of thinking is something you might have heard about before. It's deism. Deists are folks who believe in a creator, but see no evidence that this creator is invested or involved in the world in any way. Some folks um, who are agnostic might also believe something sort of similar to this. They would say that God is unknowable or unreachable by human beings, right? It's, it's, God is so other, this, this creative force is so other that we can't really apprehend it, so we shouldn't even try. 
um, which in many ways I think is an incredibly reasonable approach to a God who we who are Christian believe does go beyond human understanding, right? And so in some ways they're not that different. But the longer I'm alive, the longer I do this work of philosophy and theology, um, the more that I have conversations with friends who are agnostic or atheist, the more I have come to understand that the hardest way to approach this debate is to go down the path that is right through the middle. It would be so much easier to blame all of this on God or to blame none of this on God. Instead of trying to make some understanding out of everything that we have read and heard and seen and experienced to be true about God. It's a lot more messy. And yet I also believe that those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus will find him somewhere in the middle between these two polar opposite understandings of the world. Complexifying, or you might say muddying our vision. When we finally come upon Jesus in John chapter 16, I know you thought I wasn't going to get there, but I did. Um, Jesus is in the middle of one of his final sermons. Um, I like to call them his monologues uh, because Jesus just talks for a really long time at the end of the Gospel of John and nobody gets a word in edgewise. Kind of like what we're doing right now. (laughs) But I'm just doing what Jesus is doing, so in my defense. Just trying to do his thing. But what he's doing in this final monologue is uh, he's engaging with his disciples who have proven to him over and over again that they still have not embraced this, uh, this sort of mud that he has offered to them, right? This filter that he's giving them with which to see the world. He's just finished telling them about the Holy Spirit, right? The presence of God that will come to them when Jesus leaves so that God will still be right in their midst. He calls it the Spirit of Truth. And what we read today, what Katie read for us today, is Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for our world with all of its beauty and all of its pain, all of its waiting and all of its wallowing, uh, all of its shades of gray. And somewhere between the sovereign punisher and the hands-off watchmaker stands Jesus, fully divine and fully human in all of his complexity, reaching out to us with muddy hands, offering us a new way to see and a new way to be healed. I'm going away, and then you won't see me, he says to them, which I think is Jesus' very gentle way of telling them, I'm going to die. And immediately they begin to ask, what in the world does this mean? We won't see him anymore. That sounds crazy. Maybe Jesus is crazy. Jesus, are you crazy? And Jesus, who is ever perceptive of his disciples and their constant confusion just like their dogged commitment to being confused all the time. He confirms, I think, their worst suspicions. He says, you will be sorrowful. And yet the whole world will be happy and your sorrow will turn to great joy. This isn't the end of the story, he tells them. Do not despair. In fact, think of it like childbirth. Like I cannot think of a less comforting analogy than that one. Think of it like the most painful and sometimes incredibly deadly experience that any person can ever have. Think of it just like that. Cool. Thanks so much, Jesus. I'm going to get right on that. 
But then he says, um, it's going to be just like when the baby is born, right? All of the pain, all of the struggle, all of the waiting, all of the toil. And then there's a new beginning, a fresh start, a new life. I'll see you again, he says, and then you will have joy. And this is the joy that nobody can take away from you. And then whatever you ask God for in my name will be given to you. And then there's going to come a time when you won't even have to ask anymore because you won't need anything else. I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds like heaven to me. And as it turns out, this moment is reminiscent of a different one in which Jesus does something really similar. The, the best part about Jesus is that he just says the same things over and over and over again in a bunch of different ways until the disciples get it. And we're still trying to get it, right? <laughs> we who are the disciples are still equally confused by Jesus and what he says over and over. So way earlier in his ministry, Jesus tells the disciples that all they have to do is ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Remember that one? It's good stuff. And this advice comes right after the disciples beg Jesus. Jesus, teach us how to pray. We don't know what we're doing. And he offers them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. How does that one go again? Ah, that's right. Jesus tells us that we should pray that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to know my two cents about this whole conversation, if you want to know my two cents about the sovereignty of God, if you want to know how I respond to this great problem of pain. My answer is that I am following Jesus somewhere right in the messy middle. My answer is that God stopped playing that game of sovereignty the moment the fullness of the divine presence was put into a human body. My answer is that nothing is quite so black and white, so simple as to say that God must be one thing or the other. God must fit in these tiny little boxes that we have constructed for God. My answer is that God is not determining anything, but that God is inhabiting everything. And in doing so, is wrapping us up in the loving arms of the spirit of truth in every single moment of our lives. In the ones that are joyful and in the ones that are painful and in every moment in between. That is my answer. But if you want to know God's answer to all of our accusations that we throw at God. The answer to our claims about God's sovereignty. God's answer to the problem of pain. The beautiful thing is that God's answer is us. It's you and me. That's it. The disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, okay, I can do that. If you want to know how to pray, I'm going to teach you how to become the answer to your own prayers. If you want to know how to pray, I'm going to teach you how to build heaven here on the earth. If you want to know how to pray, follow my lead and give up your power, your control, your privilege for the sake of being together. For the sake of empathy and love. If you want to know how to pray, 
All you got to do is take up your cross and follow me. And so here is the invitation from Jesus. If you learn from me, Jesus says, how to become the answer to your own prayers, we really can save this world together. If you do that, what you're going to do is use your will to do mine until there is no need for any kind of will anymore at all. If you do that, Jesus says, we can truly make it on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.